Matthew chapter 5, uh, which we just heard read. That is our preaching text for today. Uh, and in addition, I would ask if you could also have available Isaiah 61. Uh, that was our Old Testament lesson, and I'll be referring to it in the middle. So if you could put your bulletin or something in there uh, that, that will help you to find it later, that would be, uh, that would be helpful. So, uh, Matthew 5 on page 964 and Isaiah 61 on page 741. Well, I will pray. O oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, sisters and brothers, today we continue our study of Matthew. And in our last sermon, I said that Matthew so far has had two big things to say, two core ideas, two key points. And they are this. Number one, who is Jesus? What is his identity? And number two, what has Jesus come to do? What is his mission, right? So who is Jesus and what has he come to do? And Matthew begins his gospel by answering that first question very clearly. In the very first verse, Matthew tells us that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah, the anointed one. And that means that Jesus is God's promised king. He is the son promised to Abraham and to David. He is the son who would reverse God's curse and restore God's rule. That's who Jesus is, according to Matthew. He is the Christ, the King. And because that's so, Matthew's answer to the second question, what Jesus has come to do, is at one level very simple. If Jesus is the Christ, if he is the Messiah, if he is David's son, if he is the king, then surely he has come to bring God's kingdom. And that is precisely what Matthew reports. According to Matthew, what was Jesus preaching? What was he teaching? According to Matthew, what did John, who came before Jesus, preach and teach? Well, in our last chapter, if we just have a look at that, in chapter 4, verse 17, we are told very clearly, what was Jesus preaching? Chapter 4, verse 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John was clear, Jesus was clear, and Matthew wants us to be clear. God's king has come, and so God's kingdom, in a sense, has also come. And so the question now that we ought to be asking, the question that Matthew is inviting us to ask, the question that we should all be pondering is, who shall be a citizen of this kingdom? Who shall be a citizen? And what shall they be like? What will be their characteristics? And invariably, as we ask that question, we must also ask, 
Am I like that? Am I? Do I share those characteristics? Am I? Shall I be a citizen of God's heavenly kingdom? And I think it is that question, or it's those related questions that these verses, these Beatitudes address. And so we're going to look at them right now. Have a look at Matthew chapter 5. And, and actually, before I begin, what I would like you to do is I would like you to read them through, right? Scan them through one more time, verses 2 to 12. Now, what I hope you'll notice, so you'll notice many things, but one thing I hope you to notice is that Jesus begins and ends by referring to the kingdom of heaven, right? So have a look at verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now have a look at verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I've, I've tried to teach some principles of, of how we interpret the Bible, how we read the Bible. And I'm going to teach one more today. And, and it's, uh, I'm going to sneeze in a second. It's a technique that I call the, the auntie flow technique. Okay, now it, it's this. When, when I was a little boy, uh, and I used to get Christmas presents or birthday presents, one thing that I had to do is I had to sit down and I had to write thank you notes, right? Be about a page or two pages long. And these notes would, would look something like this, right? It would be this. Uh, Dear Auntie Flo, thank you very much for the 10 pounds you gave me for my Christmas present. Uh, this term at school, I, I played some cricket and I was in the football team. I did quite well on my math test. I did very badly on my French test. Um, my brother and I have been fighting and blah, 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 paragraph, 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 all this nonsense. And then right at the end, and thank you very much for the 10 pounds you gave me for my, my Christmas present. Now, the, what is that letter really about? If you want to know what it's about, really what you've got to do is you've got to look at the beginning and the end. Thank you for the 10 pounds. Thank you for the 10 pounds. That's what the letter is about. It's what the whole letter is really about. And, and for me, the rest of the stuff in the middle is just filler. Now, in the Bible, the, the authors use a similar technique, right? If they want to say uh, that, that one whole passage is really about one idea, they'll put that idea right at the beginning and right at the end. Just the difference in the Bible is the stuff in the middle isn't nonsense, right? It's actually really important. And what we've got here, I think, is when Jesus starts with the kingdom of heaven and he ends with the kingdom of heaven, he's really telling us that the entire passage is about citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And that means that, that what we have here is not a list of eight different types of people. Right? Not first the poor, and then the mourners, and then the hungry, and so on and so forth. No, no, what we have here is a description of one type of person, the citizen of heaven, the person who is all of these things. Uh, they are meek, and they are merciful, and they are mournful. They are poor in spirit, and they are pure in heart. They are persecuted, and they are peacemakers. Right? They, they are all of these things. This describes in totality what the citizen of heaven is like. That's an important point for us to grasp first. 
And second, before we dive in, we need to understand that we have a massive cultural problem when we read these verses. It's an enormous problem, and that's this. Most of us sat here know these words, right? We, we've heard these words over and over and over again, and many of us since we were children. Uh, they are a part of the general Christian cultural backdrop. And therefore, because we know them, because we've heard them, because we're familiar with them, we just don't feel surprised by them anymore. We don't feel the shock. We don't, we don't feel how it's different. We don't feel how it, how it is so surprising. But these words are, they ought to be shocking. Now just imagine for a moment, what according to our culture is the life of blessing? Uh, what is the good life? What is the high life? What do the advertisements shout at us? What, what do our parents teach to children? What would be the secular beatitudes? Blessed are the rich in wallet, for theirs is the kingdom of earth. Blessed are those who rejoice, for they are kept from sadness and mourning. Blessed are the mighty, for they are the rulers of the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for nothing, for they are already satisfied. What Jesus is saying here is profoundly countercultural. It opposes our society, it opposes our culture, and most importantly of all, it imposes ourselves. It, imp it opposes our, our, our natural, our default way of thinking and believing. Because as Paul says, the natural person, that, that is our sinful nature, who we are outside of Christ, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. Is that, is that not so true with these words? Is it not foolishness to say, blessed are the poor in spirit? Is it not foolishness to say, blessed are the meek, those who do not use their power and might for their advantage? Is it not foolishness to say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst? But perhaps the greatest foolishness that, that we have here is, is blessed are the poor in spirit. If we were to ask the question, who is it that shall be a citizen of heaven? Who is it that shall inherit God's heavenly kingdom? What would be our natural answer? Those who deserve it. Those who are rich in spirit. Those who are high and exalted among us. Those whom we esteem in the church. Those who look great and do good works. Those people who are not impoverished of spirit, but are of high in spirit. So I think what we have here, the, the greatest counterculture, the greatest opposition, the greatest thing that opposes our natural way of thinking is this. In answer to the question, who shall be a citizen of heaven? Who shall be a citizen of that kingdom? I think what Jesus is saying is this the person who thinks that they shouldn't be. Who shall be the citizen of heaven? The person who thinks that really they shouldn't be, they ought not to be. And that is a great paradox. But before I get to that point, before we go through that, I think there is something that, that we need to understand. 
We need to understand the backgrounds to this passage. We need to understand what, what the original hearers might have thought. Those people who are steeped in the Old Testament, the people who are sat there as Jews, what would they have thought? And hopefully you would have noticed that in the past two months or so, there's been a consistent theme. Uh, regardless of who is preaching, whether it's Andrew or Dinesh or myself, we have really labored one point again and again and again. Whatsoever happened to Jesus and whatsoever Matthew reports was the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And we've labored that point, the point of fulfillment, again and again because Matthew labors it. Matthew is the one who keeps saying, this happened in order to fulfill the word of the Lord. And so now when we get to the teaching of Jesus, we can't stop, but we need to keep asking that question. What does the Old Testament have to say? Where have we heard this before? And so that's exactly what we're going to do now. We're going to turn back to Isaiah chapter 61, and we're going to look at some what I think is vital context for our passage. So Isaiah 61, that's on page 741. Okay. Now, I said a couple of weeks ago that there are three, three short points, really, three short points of context that help us to understand much of Isaiah, right? Three sentences. I'll be quick. One, Israel has broken the covenant, right? They have fallen away from God, they've disobeyed him, they've rejected him, they've rebelled against him. Two, because of this, God sent Isaiah to tell Israel that judgment was coming, that all of the curses were imminent, that the nation would go into exile, that they would face captivity. And three, and finally, Isaiah also looks beyond this fact, right? He looks beyond the exile, and he anticipates that there will be a return from exile, a renewal of God's blessing, a restoration of the nation. And it's those themes, that of exile and return from exile, that are necessary to understand this passage, right? So have a look with me. Chapter 61, verse 1. Here we read of the Messiah, Right? God's anointed, the one on whom the Spirit rests. And we learn that this Messiah is sent to bring good news. Right? He has a gospel to proclaim. And to whom does he bring this good news? To whom does he proclaim the gospel? Verse 1, have a look. To the poor. To the brokenhearted. To the captives. To those who are bound. And that's where Isaiah's context kicks in. Because in Isaiah, who is captive? Who is bound? In verse 2, who is it that mourns? Well, according to Isaiah, Israel. Because of the exile, Israel are the captives. Because of the exile, Israel are those who are bound. Israel are those who are poor and who are mourning, right? They, they understand what it, is, what it is like to be held captive, to be taken away, to feel the weight of their sin and to experience the punishment of God and to mourn and to weep. And the message of Isaiah is that to these people, to those cast off by God in his anger, 
to those who were delivered into exile and captivity, to those whose cities, verse 4, were ruins and devastations, to those who were reduced to material and spiritual poverty, to those who knew the depths of their sin and their depravity, to these, God would send good news. He would send a Messiah. He would break their exile. He would end their captivity. He would remove the foreign rulers, and he would restore and inaugurate his rule and kingdom. And so now this is the point. When we turn back now to Matthew chapter 5, and we read it again with fresh eyes, when we read that Matthew has told us that Jesus is the anointed one in chapter 1, when we read that Jesus is anointed by the Spirit at his baptism, and when in our last chapter we are told that all Israel is now gathered before Jesus. And in verse 25 of chapter 4, that crowds followed him from Galilee and from the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and from Judea and from beyond the Jordan. And in chapter 5, when we see that this great crowd, all Israel, is assembled before Jesus and they are about to hear him speak. And then when the very first thing that Jesus says to them is blessed are the poor, and blessed are those who mourn. What Jesus is saying, and what I think he would have been heard to have been saying, is he's talking first and foremost about the exiles. He's talking to those who are mourning for the captivity of Israel, those who are mourning for God's punishment and waiting for his comfort and consolation. We know this actually from last week. You remember when Dinesh was preaching on Luke chapter 2, and there we have the story of Simeon. And how is Simeon described? He's described as a just and devout man and a man who is waiting for the consolation, for the comfort of Israel. Simeon is described as a man in mourning. Mourning for what God has done to Israel. Mourning for the state of their sin and a man who is waiting to be comforted by God. That is the underlying context of this passage. And before we see that, we can't just over-spiritualize it and talk in, in general terms about being captive to sin and mourning for sin, although all of those things are true. We need to see it through the eyes of the exiles. Now, having seen it through the exiles, we will know, hopefully, that there is also a bit of a twist. Not all of the exiles would have been mourning. Not all of them would have been feeling a sense of spiritual poverty. Not all of them would be hungering and thirsting for righteousness. We know that there were many people who were quite content to live in Babylon who were quite content with Roman rule, who were quite content with the comfort that it afforded them, who were quite satisfied to become rich and wealthy, and probably didn't think of what happened five centuries ago and about the promises of God and about the nature of their sin and what God had done and how he had punished them, and were not looking forward particularly to the comfort that God would bring because they had already received comfort in this world. They had already received riches, but they were not riches that came from God. They were riches of this earth. 
And brothers and sisters, that is a danger also for us. That if we are captivated by this world, if we seek our identity fundamentally not as citizens of heaven, but as citizens of earth, then we will find our riches in this world. We will not therefore identify as impoverished of spirit, or it is significantly harder to do so because we are satisfied with the riches that we have now. It's very striking that when we read Matthew later on, that we get that parallel account. We get two accounts that are both about really who is a citizen of heaven. We get the little children who come to Jesus, and Jesus says to them, to such as these belong the kingdom of heaven. And then immediately afterwards, you have the rich young man who turns away sad because the riches of this life had effectively made him blind to his spiritual poverty. Well, brothers and sisters, finally, we, we, need to, we need to look, we need to understand what is meant by poor in spirit. What does that mean? And in essence, I think it means that, that humility before God, that recognizes that we are utterly destitute before him, that we have nothing that we can give him, that we do not deserve anything from his hands, that just like the exiles, we did not deserve for his comfort, his consolation, and his salvation, but we receive it as a gift of his grace. Brothers and sisters, be very aware, be very cautious, be very careful about the sin of pride. It is the sin that is most hostile to our faith in Christ. For what does pride say? What do we say in the arrogance of our hearts? We say to God that that sin is not so serious. It is not so weighty. It is not such a big deal. It is minimal. God can accept it. But when we minimize our sin, what are we also doing? We are minimizing the the grand majesty of God. We are despising his sinless holiness. We are saying to him that I can, I can spurn you, I can disobey you, I can reject you, I can be hostile to you, and ultimately, God, that doesn't matter. It is a small matter, if at all. That is phenomenal pride, and it is detestable in the sight of the Lord. But also in our pride, we would make so light of the gift of Christ. We would say, for what need would we need a savior? For what need does the eternal son of God have to come to die on a cross to pay for my sin? I will be all right. I could stand before God. I don't need a savior. This is the pattern of sin. Its root is in the heart, and its root is in deceit, and its root is in what we say about ourselves and about God and about the salvation he offers in Christ, and it is lethal to our Christian life. We must be aware and on guard always. For if the cross of Christ should tell us two things, it should tell us this, that the the severity of our sin, the noxiousness of our sin, the repugnance of our sin, the weight that God holds our sin is so severe, so serious that nothing less than the death of his eternal son is sufficient to forgive us. 
It required his infinite majesty to pay the penalty for our sin. That is how seriously God treats sin. And secondly, it should teach us of the rich grace and generosity that is found in Christ, that yet we did not deserve it, and yet there is an infinite price for our sin, nevertheless that God paid that price through the death of Christ, and he offers us forgiveness freely, so that David can say, blessed is the man who is forgiven, blessed is the man against whom the Lord does not count his sin, all because we can say with Paul that Christ, who was by nature rich, yet for our sakes became poor so that we through his poverty might become rich. See, we do have spiritual riches. We do have a grand deposit, but it is not found in ourselves and it can never be brought to ourselves by our own works, but it is found only in Christ. Our riches are in him and we are by nature of ourselves poor, wretched and impoverished. Brothers and sisters, this is what it means to be pure in spirit, uh, to be uh, poor in spirit. It means to acknowledge before God in humility that we have nothing that we can offer him. But yet in Christ, he gives to us freely the forgiveness of our sins. Who shall be a citizen of heaven? It is not the one who exalts himself, who believes that he is worthy, but the citizen of heaven is the one who knows in his heart that he is not worthy, that he ought not to be a citizen. Yet he or she is also the one who knows that because of Christ, and only because of Christ, that he or she may, will certainly be a citizen of heaven. Who shall be the citizen the one who knows that they ought not to be, but the one who also knows that in and because of Christ, they certainly shall be. Let us pray. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those whose sin is covered, whose trespasses are forgiven. Blessed is the one against whom the Lord does not count his sin. Gracious Father, we thank you that in the fullness of time you sent forth your Son to become poor for our sakes, that we, through his poverty, might become rich. Grant, we pray, that you would guard us from all pride, and from all foolishness of heart that says that our sin does not matter and that we do not need Christ. Keep us from the lies that say that it is not such a big deal. And we pray that we would be truly those who are humble and mournful, those who know and understand the depths of our sin and the severity of your judgment, and who believe in our hearts that we are poor of spirit, that we might embrace fully the riches that are found in Christ. And we ask, Father, these things for your name's sake. Amen.